0: Job chapter 11, is where we turn this morning. Job 11 is the last of the three friends' speeches to Job, and again, in the same vein of thought, a few variations, I suppose, on a theme that Zophar presents to Job, and yet very much in line with what the other friends have spoken, that is to say, their whole worldview, their understanding of how life works, is uh, based on these two axioms that they think are just the best thing we have around, better than sliced bread or whatever. Suffering follows sin. And so if you're suffering, there's a sin that you need to root out of your life, you need to confess it. Suffering always follows sin. So if you're not suffering, then you're doing fine. You're walking walking just fine. But they also have the corollary that is to say blessing follows piety. If you want to have the Lord's blessing, you need to lead a pious life, a religious life. Not a pious in a in a negative sense, but a a devoted to God kind of life, a, a sinless life, confessing sin and, and drawing near to God. Well, that would be wonderfully wonderful if it were true. But it's insufficient to answer or to explain all that we encounter in this life. So far, is going to present the this, this same thing and have the same solution that the other friends have made. But Job's response helps us understand we can't just think that we have God all figured out. That everything happens according to this, with this, these two rules, and therefore, we can explain everything that happens in life. And obviously, we want the blessings of, of God, and so we should live a pious life to get the blessings. And if you want to avoid the suffering, the loss of stuff, then you need to forsake sin, get that sin out of your life. Now, again, those are wonderfully true things, and yet insufficient and inadequate to explain our lives, and even to explain God's beauty, the worship that we owe him, not because of what he gives us, but because who he is, which the Zophar is going to allude to a little bit, the wonderful wisdom beyond our comprehension kind of stuff of God. And Job answers it too. But God is so beyond us. God, God is so powerful, so rich in his abundant presence. I mean, just amazing who he is. And we should love him for who he is and worship him. Now, we mentioned some time ago about the I mentioned I like royal we, whatever. Inversion of Satan's accusation. This is the opposite of what Satan had accused. These friends are presenting a, a truth that, that is basically the opposite or the inverse of, of what uh, Satan had suggested back in chapters one and two, that piety follows blessing. In other words, the only reason that Job is worshiping God is because of all the blessings that God had given to him. In other words, God has to buy his followers, his worshipers, which is wicked against Humans, that they're so mercenary that oh, I'll do whatever to get God's favor. But it's also wicked blasphemy against God, saying, God, the only reason people worship you is because of the stuff you give. You're not worthy in yourself, but what you give them, is that's, that's even better than you are. Whoa, that is such a, a wicked thought. But the other thing here is Satan's accusation. You cause suffering to Job and he will sin. He will curse you to your face. And so piety follows blessing, sin follows uh, suffering, that's not true in Job's life. Job's piety did not, especially at the end of the book, does not come after God restored all of his fortune and restored his health and all these things. No, Job is restored to God's relationship just by his confession, his, his humility before God and drawing near in and faith and, and uh, uh, pleading for his grace upon his life, recognizing who he is. He never sinned. He spoke foolishly, he admitted that he I, "I know I'm speaking rashly, but you know what I've suffered. What I'm suffering even now, is what what uh, Job focuses on." Well, Job chapter 11, you see that this fellow Zophar the Naamathite answered, and he's talking to to uh, Job, and he says a lot of things. We will look at uh, these things in kind of a, a very summary order, I suppose, and essentially we'll look at these four four. Sections, I guess, of of Zophar's thoughts against Job. First, he accuses Job of babbling. Job, you're babbling. What is he saying? Verse two says, "Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and, and a man of lips be in the right? Shall your boast silence men, and shall you mock and none rebuke?" And he quotes him, or misquotes him, really, in the next few verses. But he's saying, "Look, you have all these words. You're, you're full of hot air, Job. You're babbling. You're repeating yourself. It's just embarrassing. You ought to just shut up because, uh, and because you're not listening to wisdom, right?" Uh, shall your boast silence, men? Shall you mock and none rebuke? These friends are rebuking. They are mocking him. They are finding fault with him. They're giving him a, giving him a solution that is not adequate, not appropriate to his, his issue. And so Job, yes, is speaking rashly. He's, he's speaking out of the overflow of a hurt, you know, just a, a bitter heart. Not ultimately bitter, but just disturbed. He is in pain. He's discomfort, He's lost all these things. And, and he's forget all the stuff he's lost. What about the relationship he had with God? He's going to refer to it in uh, chapter 12, this man who called on God and God answered him. That's the relationship Job had with God. But now God is distant. Where is God and and my troubles and my my struggles? He doesn't understand. So Zophar accuses of him babbling. Verse uh, four, he misquotes them. Zophar misquotes Job, says, My learning is pure. Job never said his doctrine. Maybe your translation says doctrine is pure. Job never said that. He said, No, I, I I'm speaking just words. I'm I'm trying to figure these things out, speaking even as he's he's trying to think through the issues. He's 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 thinking out loud, I suppose you could say it that way. He doesn't have a settled doctrine. He's not proclaiming this is the way things I mean, even in his his chapters twelve through fourteen, his second longest speech to the friends. He is all over the place with his, you know, I'm confident of this and then I'll fear this and, and I, I know God is this way, but then I know God is this way. And just it's just a study in diversity or study in extremes, I guess, of, of opinion. And so no, Job does not have a pure, uh, undefiled or, or, you know, clean doctrine he's presenting here. <clears throat> he does say I'm innocent. He proclaims his innocence, his integrity before God. But uh, it, it's not a wicked thing because even... A truth that Zophar didn't know, Job didn't know. I mean, Job knew it experientially, but he didn't know it by decree that Job, verse 1, chapter 1 of Job, was a blameless, upright man, fearing the Lord, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So he is innocent in this regard. He's not suffering because of sin. But that's the, that's the explanation that all the friends have. And so that's the solution they would uh, prevent, present, rather. He says in verses 5 and 6, Job, you're self-righteous. Look, if you would, verse 5 says, if you would uh, just, or excuse me, would that God might speak and open his lips against you and tell you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Job, you you present yourself as a self-righteous person. You think you're just so wonderful. But let me tell you, God hasn't punished you nearly as much as you deserve. How does he say? God forgets a part of your iniquity. And you think, wait a minute, the extreme suffering that Job endured, you're saying he only was punished for a part of his sin? What would it be like if God punished him for everything? Well, in some respects you could say Job would have died, right? The wages of sin is death. Everything around him died. I know his sheep and and oxen and so forth didn't die, they're taken, but his sons and daughters were killed through the course of this, and a lot of servants as well. So Zophar is just accusing him, look, there's some kind of a sin in your life. And later in this context, the words that that Zophar uses for sin here, iniquity, he talks about transgression, I think a little bit later, unrighteousness, it kind of has the, he's implying that Job, I know where your wealth really came from. I know that you steal, you oppress, you extort other people. You're just a mean fella. And that's how you have all this wealth, and that's why it was taken away from you. So you just confess all that to God. You've, you've tried to, to secret it away, but let me tell you, God forgets a part of your iniquity, but you need to confess the rest of it. He has a perspective here in verses 7 through 12 here, basically saying, Job, you don't know anything. You know nothing. Can you, verse 7, can you find the depths of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? This is... Uh, Saying, can you find even the, the the smallest or hidden hidden part of God, or the most grand expression of it, the the, the depths and the limits, the the expanse of of the Almighty? And the implied answer is, well, no, I guess I can't. They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. What is interesting about this is he's accusing Job of being ignorant, but and and that God is so beyond us, but then he goes on to explain: God is like this. God is like this. This is what God does, and this is what you should do to get back on God's favor. In other words, I've got God figured out. Job, listen to me. Who's the self righteous one here? Who's the one who who claims things beyond his his ken? You know, ken, the, beyond his knowledge. Now he's he's really presenting himself as the person who knows all these things. And verse 10 says, if he sweeps by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can turn him around? Who can who can subvert or contradict what he's doing? He knows worthless men, wink, wink, Job, Job. You know, I'm looking at you, Job. He sees wickedness and so will he not carefully consider it. And then he calls Job. I mean, this is kind of a difficult verse to understand the, the train of thought, but essentially he's calling Job an empty-headed man that he is like uh, the... the uh, as if a wild donkey were to to be born a man. I mean you're just you're as dumb as a donkey. And he uses the the old King James verb, you know, noun about the donkey stuff. But he he's just saying, look, you know nothing. You should just listen to me because I'll help you to know God. And listen, listen, this is what you ought to do. Verse 13, you should repent. Set your heart right. Spread out your hands to him. If wickedness is in your hand, put it far away. Now that sounds like good advice. That's what we would say to one another, you know, forsake sin. I said it this morning already. Yes, we should do that. But that's not Job's issue. It's not why these bad things have happened in his life. It is a different reason what God is doing in that regard. But the solution, because of the the explanation of what God is doing in this this, uh, situation is this. God, you know, sin follows suffering, or excuse me, suffering follows sin. That obviously if Job is suffering, then he needs to put that sin away from him. He says, don't let unrighteousness dwell in your tents, which is kind of a hint of, Do you remember in uh, Joshua 7, when Achan went in and and took some fine things out of one of the cities that they had destroyed and hid it in his tent with, I mean, when doing that kind of thing and burying it as he did, his household would have known about what was going on. That they, hey, what you doing, Achan digging the hole in the middle of your floor in your tent? Oh, look at that, the cloth and the gold and all the stuff that he'd stolen. And so his household, his tent, even the, the dwellers in the tent, they were in the midst of that unrighteousness that Job was doing too, which had, as Bildad had said, if your sons had sinned, then God gave them over into their transgression. They get what they deserve. And Job, you are fortunate that God hasn't killed you yet. So he's saying, look, get those things out of your lives, out of your life. Don't let unrighteousness dwell there. Then, oh, the blessing! And this is a beautiful picture that, that so far presents of a person who is in a right relationship with God, but it falls so much short. It's all it's focused on just the the trappings i suppose of a relationship with god and not not the the relationship that we have with god himself he says in verse 15 then you could lift up your face without moral defect you could you could not be ashamed and cover your face you know how different criminal types do and and when they're hiding from the the journalists or whatever you could show up and it wouldn't be a problem you would be steadfast you'd be immobile and so forth and you wouldn't fear anything you'd forget your trouble it's waters that pass by you know water under the bridge kind of thing it just wouldn't be an issue for you anymore. Your lifetime would rise bright with the noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. You would trust because there's hope. You would search around, rest securely. You'd lie down, and none would make you stumble. And many would entreat your favor, which they had before. Job was again the greatest of the sons of the east. He had people coming to him for wisdom, counsel. Hey, Job, what do you think of this? Hey, Job, would you help me with this? Hey, Job, oh, just thank you, you know, kind of thing. And 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 so far says you just turn your life around, you'll have that back and and more. But, verse 20, contrast, the eyes of the wicked will come to an end and escape will perish from them and their hope is the expiring of their soul. You think, wow, so far you really ended on a high note, didn't you? Well, he's just saying, look, Job, you're, you're a mess and you need to confess your sin and you need to draw near to him because the eyes of the wicked will come to an end, you'll, both in physically, blindness and so forth, but even the sensory perception about life. There's no means of escape. Uh, Escape will perish from then. There's no way out. God's going to find you out. And the only hope that you have is you'll die. Which, yeah, if God is against you in this life, yes, the only hope that we have is to end my suffering. And that's what Job has been saying. God, take my life. Why am I still alive kind of thing? But the other side of that is there is no expiring of the soul. Ultimately, our souls live forever. There is no expectation that someday my Suffering as an unbeliever, one who has forsaken Christ, that someday my suffering, my life will be ended. I will cease to exist and return to the cosmos or whatever. No, God creates and God creates people in his image that will live forever. There is no hope of the expiration of the soul. It will live forever. Well, Job responds to this wonderful foolishness of Zophar, who presents himself as the learned person, right? And Job even picks up on that here in, in the opening uh, dialogue. But he is defending himself here in the uh, these first uh, chapter 12, and then into chapter 13, he defends himself against the accusations, the, the rude accusations. I mean, whereas the other friends kind of implied it and kind of beat around the bush a little bit, Zophar just comes out, you know, guns a-blazing. He just steps into the, the mess of which is Job's life as he perceives it. And he interprets God in his own mind and says, you, you're just this way and God is this way. And you, Job, you need to repent and, and draw near to him. Well, Job responds and he says, no, no, that's not what's going on. Verse, tw- verse two, truly then you are the people and with you wisdom will die. You got it all figured out. You are the gentleman. You are the learned people. We bow down to you. And, and when you die, you know, have you, have you written this stuff down? Because this is really good. You know, without, without you here, how we know anything? He's mocking them. He's just saying, look, I know just as well as you. Verse three, I have a heart of wisdom as well as you. I do not fall short of you. Who does not know what you're talking about? I understand, Job says, I understand this is how we understand the world to operate and and sin follows suffering and blessing follows piety. And that makes sense to some degree, but it doesn't apply in my situation. And I've seen lots of examples where this suffering and blessing has nothing to do with anything. It's just, it happens. And we can't explain it. We can't understand God. See, part of the issue that these friends have, which day back in that century, you know, 4,000 years ago, and even today, we look at events and we say, well, God is doing this. We, we Because this happened, obviously God is, is doing this. We don't know what God is doing. We don't. We, we, you know We know God is good. We know God is sovereign over things, which is, none of the friends will argue that. Job himself, all of them affirm God's sovereignty, his wisdom, definitely. But what is he doing? Well, the friends have an answer. Job says, I don't know what he's doing. I want to know. I want to stand before God and hear from him. Tell me, what, what have I done wrong? What are my sins? He, he goes in, in his response here in chapters 12 to 14, asking God, show me, tell me what I've done wrong so I can at least get rid of that stuff. Uh, I want to answer before God and God to answer to me. There's never a question of God's sovereignty. It's just a matter of what is he doing? Trying to understand, to extrapolate, this happened and this happened, therefore this happened. Even as we look at each other, uh, we can misinterpret events, conversations even, that we jump to conclusions. Oh, well, this person did this to me. So that means that, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Remember the example, uh, I think Jay Adams was the one, counselor from from, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, just passed away last year, uh, who said, you know, these two ladies were in the church meeting, and, and one lady just made eye contact and then ran out with this other lady. And the lady over here was saying, what, what's the deal? This lady saw me and then ran out the other way. I don't know what's going on. So the one lady followed after this other lady. This, I have your riveted attention. I see there's conflict, right? Oh, um, Finally kept caught up with the, the other lady, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I looked at you, and then I, my nose started to bleed. I ran out to get some tissue oh i mean she could have right she was assuming that oh she hates me and she's and you know all this and that these conversations misinterpret the whole thing she had an issue took care of it that's why when we have issues with each other maybe just try, trace that rabbit a little bit farther when we have issues with one it, let's talk about them let's solve them let's try to understand both sides because the Proverbs talks about the one who first to present his case seems right. Boy, that's until his friend comes to examine or answer or, or talk about these things. Problems, in other words, are for solving. We don't want to extrapolate and say, well, that person is always like this or that person did this, so this means that. doesn't necessarily talk it out, work it out. And that's what Job wants to do. He wants to talk with God. What's going on here? I thought I was on your good side. I was the one. In fact, he says, verse four, I was the one who called on God and he answered me. You remember calling on God. Remember in Genesis five, uh, the sons of God began to call on God in that day. And we see that throughout the scripture, calling, relating to him, drawing near to him. Job was the one and God answered him, but God has been silent. God has never spoken in these last really from chapter two. And never Job never heard that, never heard that conversation in heaven between God and, and Satan. And so he thinks God is silent and has removed his face even. We'll see that here in just a moment. I was the one, but now I'm a laughing stock. People mock me; they they hate me. Uh, in fact, you guys, you you are showing contempt to me. You're just being all kind of mean spirited to me. You're the one who are all at ease, and there's nothing bad with you, but you are just mocking those whose feet are ready to slip down into destruction. There's no help from you, and I only expect uh, devastation. Certainly, no help from you, and now a destruction of my life. Verse six talks about the destroyers. The tents of the destroyers are complacent. Those who provoke God are secure. Wait a minute. Those who provoke God are secure. Isn't that the opposite of what you should expect? The tents of the destroyers are complacent or at peace. I mean, they're, they've let their guard down because they, there's nothing going to happen to these criminals. Now, those who provoke God to his face, oh, they're secure. Wait a minute. What is it? That's not how it should be. But God is the one who gives justice in this regard. And Job expects that. God is a God of justice. And so he is perfectly, not just willing, but demanding even, God, give me my day in court. I will defend myself to the death, even though he were to kill me, yet I would trust in him. We'll see that in chapter, uh, verse 13, or chapter 13. He says, maybe in a parody kind of way, verse 7, mocking because all these different friends that have spoken to Job says, hey, look at creation. Look at the animals. Look at the trees. Look at the mountains and, and learn from this. And Job says, look, you go and ask the beast. Let them instruct you. Or maybe they're, they're saying, maybe Job is, is saying, you're, you're telling me to go and look at these things. Let me tell you that, verse 9, among all these does not know, who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this. He is the one who created all these things. Verse 10, he is the one who upholds the life of all things. It's not that anything on the face of creation happens apart from God's explicit and direct uh, work in our lives. I understand there's things of providence, but it's always God working things out in his perfect will, his perfect way. And I know these things does not the ear test words? I mean, I can hear and I, I can test things. I can he's talking about the ear as a as a sensory organ that I, you know, this is how knowledge comes in and the palate the palate you know, tasting or determining what the the taste and texture of food is. I know discernment. And then he he says this, which Verse verse 12, wisdom is with aged men with long life is discernment. There's a question. Okay, you guys are aged men. You're not very wise. You think you got this all figured out. Discerning is able to cut, you know, between, in so many respects, between clean and unclean, true and false, right and wrong. You'd expect aged men, and here it says, those with long life, to be able to know these things. And Job has lived, obviously he's a father to 10 kids, so he's lived a little while. It's not like he's a spring chicken. Uh, How old is he? I don't know. He lives another 140 years after all these events, according to uh, chapter 42. So you'd think that wise wisdom would go with aged people. It's not always the case. He speaks of God's strength here in verse uh, 13 to the end of the chapter, extolling wonderfully, portraying God as sovereign over all these things. But notice the repeated emphasis here is he just sets things all in topsy-turvy ways. You'd you think that, okay, if, if sin follows suffering and blessing follows piety, then God would always act, always act in a certain degree, a certain direction. And it's not the case. Look at this. With him, our wisdom and might, to him belong counsel and discernment. So four different words describing his, both his, his uh, wisdom, what he does, and, but also his ability to, to, cur- to cut or discern these things. So, but what belongs to him? Wisdom. Knowing, and not just knowing what to do, but knowing all the details about things. We don't. We judge based on what? Appearances. We, we think we know what's going on, like the ladies had that issue. No, we, we think we know what's going on, but God has perfect knowledge. And so we can trust that what he knows and is able to inform his wisdom or his choices and so forth. And, by the way, he has power. Verse 14 a sovereignty that cannot be denied, cannot be overturned. He pulls down, and it can't be rebuilt. You're know, pulling down, not just like a ladder or something out of the attic, but pulling down like destroying, and nobody can rebuild it. You just can't do it. Uh, he closes a man in, and it can be opened. His the prison bars or the the dungeon that the God casts this person into. He's the one who restrains waters, and they dry up. He sends them out, and they overrun the earth, overturn the earth. Excuse me. You, we see the just tremendous. And we see this often, I mean, every, not every day necessarily, but often we see either the lack of water when we have drought situations or the overflowing of water. Too much water, not enough water, too much water. And God does all these things. He's the one who restrains the waters and he sends them out. Who does these things? These calamities, these catastrophes? It's God. God has that power. Uh, To him, verse 16, uh, with him are strength and sound wisdom. It's good to have sound wisdom and strength to have strength without wisdom, that's a recipe for disaster. To have uh, uh, wisdom without strength, that's a recipe for frustration, right? I know what I can do, but I have no power to do it. You do what you can. You do what you can. The misled and the misleader belong to him. What? Huh. The misled, those who are deceived, and the ones who deceive, deceive they belong to him. In other words, God works through all kind of circumstances. Every person belongs to him. God uses sinful people to accomplish his will. And you think, well, that's not right. The God should judge them. Well, he will if they don't repent. He used, I mean, that was the whole thing about Habakkuk. Habakkuk said, God, how can you use these Babylonians? They're nasty people. How can you bring them to destroy your lovely, holy people, Israel? By the way, he's looking at his people. He says, oh, quit sinning for just a minute. I'm talking to God about your, how God's going to judge. Quit sinning over there. Habakkuk came to realize God's going to use whom are going to use, but he, God holds the Babylonians responsible for their wickedness their sin against God and his people God uses all these things verse 17 God makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges counselors are those who would counsel Judges or kings or those who, uh, you know, they'd give opinions. David had hithophel and uh, speaking truth and know, the counselors, but God. Whereas these counselors would be used to walking around in, in wonderful clothing, they'd be the honored people. They would be well received. They'd have access to the king, which is pretty good. God makes them ashamed. You won't be clothing. You're know, wearing fine clothing. You're, you're going to have nice shoes on your feet. You're going to walk barefoot. That's disgraceful. That's shameful. Um, and, and so he, he just brings shame to those who are full of glory, and he makes fools of judges. Judges are supposed to be the people who honor uh, truth and are able to discern between right and wrong, and he makes fools of them. Just makes them demented. Just they, their minds do not work. They have no ability to discern right and wrong. Just under undercuts everything. He opens the bond of kings and binds their loins with a belt. What is this? He's he's bringing shame upon kings. He's he's opening the, their skirts, and and that means all their all their. Um, their robe and so forth just falls down. It's not like girding, girding the loins. Now they're, they're girt with a loin that probably, or girt with a belt rather, that leads them probably into captivity. We see this so many different times with the kings of Israel and Judah that they're led away into captivity uh, with uh, uh, binds upon them. He makes priests walk barefoot and subverts the enduring ones. So even the religious leaders are affected by this. He removes speech from the faithful, takes away the discerning, takes to the elders, employs contempt on nobles, loosens the belt of the strong. All these things you can read through it. He's the one, not just on an individual level, but we're talking nations. Nations even. He verse twenty three, he makes nations great and then makes them perish. So they come to their height of their, their power and their, you know, their zenith of, of influence and, and uh, wealth and all this. And then he says, okay, enough. Who's the next guy? And brings them up. You know, there is this portrayal of, of the history of, of the land of Israel from, I mean, how far, where do you want to start? Um, we'll start with the conquest. Why not that? You have Israel coming in and they destroy the Amorite and the Hittite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and all these different people. And now they're on top. But then what happens? Then the Philistines come in, and they, they take some of this land, and they're doing stuff. And then, okay, they kind of subdue them. But then the Assyrians come in, and they destroy the whole place. And then the Babylonians come in. And then after the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians come in. And after the Medes and Persians, and the Greeks come in from the east, or from the west, rather. And then after the Greeks, well, the Romans come in. And after the Romans, and you have a bunch of Arab kind of situations going After the Arabs, you have the Crusaders coming in. We're about 1000 AD now. Okay, and then you get the idea. Wow, he makes all these nations, just empires come and go. Because God works on a small scale and on a humongous scale beyond we can ever think or analyze. How does God order all these things? How does God make this all happen? He just does. All wisdom, all power belong to him. He enlarges nations, leads them away, removes heart, the heart of wisdom from the heads of earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. I mean, you'd think these people know better. And what do they do And chasing after foolishness in the desert? Verse 25, they grope in darkness with no light and he makes them wander about like a drunken man. God is able to just totally undo everything that we think is is proper and appropriate in our life. God is powerful over all these things. And in chapter 13, he goes on, I know all this stuff. I've seen it. I have seen this with my own eyes, right? My eye has seen this. My ear has heard and I understand it. What you know, friends, I know. I've not fallen short of you. You guys, look, you're missing the whole thing. I verse 3 chapter 13 I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue with God not in a mean-spirited haughty way even though he does kind of tend toward that toward the end of this of his of his speech uh, chapters uh, 29 to 31 especially he will kind of get rather arrogant toward his, his talk about himself and his his talk to God. But he says, I want to speak to the Almighty. I want him to answer me, have this conversation because you, you, verse four, are covering me with lies. You're lying about me. There's nothing wrong in my life. Whatever sin has been in my life, I have confessed it. I've rooted that out. I, I offer sacrifices, certainly for my kids, right? Verse five of chapter one, how much more so for me? I know I'm I'm not a... In myself, I'm not a good person. But I have approached God. I've I've dealt with my sin. I come before Him with a blameless heart. But you guys, you're covering me with, over with lies. You're all worthless physicians. It's, it's like they're applying a solution or a remedy or even a, a balm for a, a, a sin that's or a weakness or a disease. It's not there. They are are beyond worthless. They're 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 bad. Job says you are covering me with lies. But you are also blaspheming god you are saying things untrue about god which god himself is going to say back in later in chapter 42 you've not spoken rightly of me as my servant job has he says uh, verse five you know what would be best for you guys just zip it close your mouths if it would be good for you to be completely silent that you would and that would be your wisdom please hear me give heed to the contentions of my lips what is he saying Will you speak, verse 7, will you speak what is unrighteousness for God? Will you speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? In other words, they're misrepresenting who God is. They're saying God always acts this way. We can always expect this to happen according to this pattern of, of always. It's, it's always how it happens. And so obviously sin is in, in your life, Joe, because you're suffering. And so this is, and you repent and you'll have the blessing. No, that's not what God is about. That's not what God said back in chapters 1 and 2. They are misrepresenting God. Do you remember how in 1 Corinthians 15, how Paul says, look, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are found to be false witnesses or, or speaking falsely about God, that we, we claim things that he did that he didn't really do. Whoa, that's not good. Job says, you guys, you, you better be careful because, verse 9, will it be well when he examines you? Will you deceive him as one deceives a man? No, he will surely reprove you. And if, if you secretly show partiality, the thing is they're not secretly showing anything. They are just very uh, eloquent and loquacious about their words. They're sharing all these wonderful thoughts that they have and says, oh, you are going to pay for that. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. God is going to come and examine you. And he does. Chapter 42. Will not his exaltedness terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? When God does appear in the whirlwind, chapter 38, it gets Job's attention. It gets Elihu's attention. Elihu's the one who's speaking with him. yet. Yeah, we'll meet him later in chapter 32. But Job says, look, does anything about God frighten you? You've got God all figured out. You think you've got him managed, got, you know, God under control. Does anything about him terrify you at the soul level? Do you have any sense of dread at his presence? Do you think, oh, God's just like a brother. You know what he's going to do. We can even manipulate him. If we want God to do a certain thing, we just need to do these things. And Job says, You are in a dangerous situation. And he says, Verse 12, What you're saying, it's ash. You're, you're building up all these wonderful proverbs, but they're made of ash. They can't do anything. Your defenses are defenses of clay. When an iron uh, implement comes against a clay pot, what happens to the pot? Well, it breaks the iron bar, right? No, no. The iron bar shatters that clay. That's exactly what these friends are, are building up this whole thing. And it's a house of cards, if you do a different analogy. So he says, look, verse 13, he changes. He, well, he's transitioning, I suppose, from a defense against his friends or to his friends to a defense to God, a, a drawing near to him. He says, be silent. Just let me, let me speak. And whatever will happen will happen. I'm taking, verse 14, I'm taking my life in my own hands. I am being bold enough to enter or seek to enter God's presence and put my or lay my case before Him. argue my ways, verse 15. Uh, he says, verse 15, this is, I didn't realize how much controversy there is in this verse. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Long story short is this verse can be understood as we typically understand it, even if God were to slay me, and this is not a nice slay—I mean, kill, you know, uh, execution. This is a slaughter. This is just a, you know death, uh, like you'd see in any kind of nasty, violent uh, movies. I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible death. Even if God were to kill me in that way, I will still—here it's translated—hope in Him. the The root idea of that word is to to wait, to be patient. Elihu uses it later in chapter 32. He says, look, I was waiting for you, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so forth. I was waiting for you to speak some sense to Job and to shut him up, and it didn't happen, so I have to do it myself. So there's that idea of being patient. It has the ideas of hoping, trusting, finding a refuge in him. And so the, the idea here is the traditional idea, which I would affirm, is that even if God were to kill me, slaughter me, I will still put my hope in him. I will still trust him. I will still say he's, he's, he's my life. There's no other solution, no other resource I can run to. It, It can mean that. And that's what most translations have. Another way to, to understand it is, or to translate it even, is to say he slaughters me. I won't wait. I will not wait. I will argue my ways before him. I've got to do it now before he kills me. I've got to present my case because he's going to kill me soon and that'll be the end of it, right? Sheol, there's no nothing that happens after Sheol, even though he does have a little inkling of hope that we'll see here in just a moment, uh, that, that after Sheol, that there might be some hope. He says, look, I need to have my justice now because I'm dying. I have no expectation. I mean, again, remember Job is suffering, head to the, the top of the head to the sole of the foot, boils just, nasty situation for months. This has been going on weeks anyway, been going on. And he says, I don't have any expectation. I'm not getting better. This is only getting worse. There's no solution. You guys, physicians, yeah, you know, worthless physicians. There's nothing that's going to help me. I've got to get right with God now because I'm going to die. And then there's, there's nothing that I can do. Verse 16, this also will be my salvation for a godless man may not come before his presence. In other words, in this verse, uh, verse 16, the opening phrase, this also be my salvation. The Septuagint version of this is quoted word for word in Philippians chapter one, verse 19, when Paul says, this also work out for my salvation. What is he talking about? When not just his death or his release from prison, remember that whole situation is in prison, Rome, whatever, he is supposed to give his, present his case before Caesar. And he says, this will be my salvation, my deliverance. What? The defense that he makes before Caesar. One way or another, me going before Caesar either is going to end in my, my um, uh, being set free, being absolved of all these sins, or I'm going to die. Either way, it's a deliverance, getting out, getting out of this situation. And so Job says it this way too. This is my salvation going before God, but the confidence he has in verse 16, a godless man, no, he can't come into God's presence. I'm not a godless person. I am Godward all the way. And so I have a confidence that because I am for God and God used to be for me, I think he still is, but I don't understand why all these things have happened. I feel confident to come before him in this way. Do you remember how Esther was encouraged to come before the king? And she said, well, I can't come before the king unless he invites me. This is Job's kind of thing. Look, I'm taking my life in my own hands. I'm going before the king of the universe and he may kill me. But this is my only hope. I, have, I can't wait any longer. I've got to defend my ways before him, before he, he kills me. And I have confidence that I have a relationship with him. I am a godless person. Excuse me, I am not a godless person. And so I have that confidence that he will welcome me into his presence. And that's the relationship, by the way, that Esther had with the king. The king said, come on in. And we can read about that in Esther. You could read about um, I'm skipping over some wonderful things that Job says. Verse 20, Job asked two things. Look, I want to present my case, but two things, God, I want you to do for me because uh, this is a big deal for me. Uh, you know, he says two things. If you wouldn't mind, move your hand far from me. Let not dread of you terrify me. So he says, this is so scary. Would you at least kind of turn your back a little bit so the, the awesome weight of your glory would not just scare me to my bones? Would you just even release your hand a little bit from my suffering so that at least I'd have the physical stamina to stand before you? I mean, I am just suffering. I can't sleep at night and all these other things that he could mention. Would you just remove my suffering a little bit, remove the, the dread of you from just a little bit? And then verse 22, the second thing he asked, call and I will answer or let me speak and then respond to me. In other words, Either either you be the plaintiff and I'll be the defender or defendant or, or vice versa, whichever. Let's just work out the, the protocol or the solution of, our, of the defense. And uh, But can we talk about these things? Can we talk? And then he says, look, what have I done? Verse 23, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my transgression and my sin. He uses three different words again for describing these things in a generic sense. What have I done? What are the, all these things that I've done? Um, he, he speaks in a, in a kind of a big picture way. Show me, tell me what I've done so I can at least know, have the, the assurance or the understanding, what? Why is this suffering coming upon me? I don't understand it at all. Why do you hide your face? Again, that is the most severe blow that Job has experienced. Yes, his livestock was taken. Yes, all these servants, his children were killed. But why does God hide his face? Why can't I have a relationship with him? Why do you hide your face and think of me as your enemy? That word enemy is related, same root word as Job's name. Why do you, why, you know, you could say Job, his name is enemy. Uh, And why are you treating me like Job, like an enemy? Uh, I'm not, I'm on your side. I want you in my life. I want to honor you. And he compares himself to a driven leaf, to a dry chaff. And he says, I don't understand. You You hem me in. You put me in stocks. You're just always watching me, looking for, for ways to destroy me. And and meanwhile, verse 28, I'm skipping over a lot of wonderful things. I am decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that's moth-eaten. Not a, a, a swift, sudden, just kill him now. No, let's just watch him kind of just, over time, decay. Like moth-eat or rotten things. Just Rot takes things over. Or like a moth-eaten garment. I, I, there's, there's no hope that Job has. And he goes on. Excuse me, I didn't give you that. Job petitions God for justice. He says, look, I want justice from God. We're going to wrap things up really quickly, I promise you. Man who's born of women is short-lived and full of turmoil. In fact, look, he's emphasizing the mortality, the fragility of life. Just there's nothing I have that, that presents me or recommends me to God. God is eternal. God is in the heavens. And who am I? Just a guy born of you know life from somebody else. I don't even have life in my own essence like god does and whatever short uh, days that i have they are full so short but also full of turmoil and just all this wickedness and all this pain and suffering Uh, the brevity of life like a flower like a shadow a shadow it's not like in peter pan right a shadow can't even stand it can't do anything there's no substance to it there's nothing that a shadow influences in life ultimately because it is fleeting it goes by You bring judgment, or excuse me, you open your eyes on him and bring me into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. There's a sharp distinction, verse four, sharp distinction made in the Levitical law, which is centuries after Job. He doesn't know about that stuff. But he says there's clean and it's unclean. And how can you make something that is unclean, clean? There's no human way to do that. No one can do these things. He is implying perhaps, hopefully, that God can do it. God, you show me my transgressions, my sin, my iniquity. You can make me clean. You are the one, but I don't see that. I don't see that solution for me. I see judgment. I see suffering. I see your 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 back is turned against me in a in a kind way. He said, "God, if you just remove a little bit of your weighty glory from me, so I can take a breath." But it's this idea of of. Uh, turning his back against him in in punishment or in revulsion. I can't stand Job, said God. Uh, turn your gaze, verse 6, turn your gaze from him that he may cease from toil until he accepts his day like a hired man. Just give me some relief. Give me a payment for my whatever I've done right in my life. But also, the evening comes for a day laborer and there's time for rest and there's time for refreshment. Verse 7 and through 12 is a contrast between the expected resurrection or or revival of a tree uh, there's hope for a tree hey, it's cut down it might come back because it had a root system in the ground and maybe there'd be a little a little sprout or something a little little sucker that would grow off of that and the tree would come back because it has a system not so for man kill him he's dead verse 10 when man dies he lies prostrate he breathes his last. where is he where is he you expect him to come back no there's no expectation of of resurrection as water evaporates from the sea, his river become parched and dried up. So a man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. In the midst of all these things, and again, he's speaking rashly. He's speaking uh, all over the place, but he, he kind of has this expectation as Abraham did, a contemporary of Job, most likely. Abraham's trying to think, figure out, God, you told me to kill Isaac, my son, through whom the blessing is going to come. Well, somehow God's going to have to be able to raise the dead. And so Abraham thought through that, the possibility of life after death. Job is thinking about that. Humanly speaking, it's not going to happen, but God is able. God is able to do these things until the heavens are longer. And there's a, a resurrection at the last day. And he says, verse 13, Until that time, God, would you hide me in Sheol, that place of the dead? We could talk more about Sheol, but it's essentially, where do our spirits go? Where did the spirits go back before Christ came to the earth? Where did the spirits of people go to Sheol? And we conceive in Jesus' parable in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man was in Hades, it's called a Greek Greek term for Sheol, Hebrew Sheol, and the Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. You see a distinction, different compartments people have used to describe Sheol. But now those who are in, in Sheol who are righteous, what did God do through Christ? When Christ resurrected, he took captivity captive. He took those who were in Abraham's bosom and took them to himself such that we can have the confidence in Second Corinthians 5. To be absent from the body is to be in Sheol. No, is to be present with the Lord in his presence. Where's Jesus? In heaven, the right hand of God, the Father. So we see that. But he says, look, if you just hide me, just put me away in a little cupboard for a while until your anger goes back to you. I don't know why you're so angry, but could you just put me on pause, put me on timeout, you know, in a parental kind of a way. And when your anger subsides, would you come, set, a, set a, a, a limit, set a timer, set a reminder. This is basically the idea of verse 13, that you would set a limit for me and remember me and come to my aid. Bring me out of detention and let's have that relationship we had before because I don't know what's going on. But then he goes back and says, if a man dies, verse 14, will he live again? All the days of my labor in this life, all my suffering, all my turmoil, like he said back in verse one, I will wait through these things, things, all the days of my labor, I will wait until my change comes. That word change is not the word for resurrection, but it gets that idea, it gets us close to that idea of Some change, making, again, the unclean clean, taking a dead person and not just reviving them, but re-resurrecting them, bringing them to a newness of life. And I have that expectation. I'm I'm expecting that change. And then he says, verse 15, you will call and I'll answer you. God, you will initiate the relationship. I will respond. You will long for the work of your hands. You will delight in that. You will delight in me as the one you've made, you made in your image and, and brought me close to yourself. But then he goes back to the present day, verse 16. Right now, you number my steps. You, uh, I wish that you would not keep watch over my sin. Your transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover up my iniquity. It's kind of, what is he saying there? Is he saying that there's forgiveness, that, that there's going to be a time when you will not hold me liable for all those sins that I've committed? Or is he saying, no, I know that you do examine myself. You do seal up my transgressions in a bag. That is not a bag like a, a waste bag. You know, a trash bag, but a bag of, of treasures that God is going to bring out and make me pay for all my sins. He smears, is the word, cover up, kind of like was used earlier. He, you cover up my iniquity. It's not, it could be, yes, in a positive sense, you forgive my sin, but it could be in the sense, you you, you smeared all over my face, kind of just put it right back in me, and you, you're, you're doing these things. Again, Job is, is wonderfully hopeful, but then conversely just so not hopeful and he alternates between that even in the same breath he's saying god is so good but then he's going to kill me what how is this going to happen and he compares himself to a mountain you know good strong mountain that crumbles away a rock a water you know we're talking about erosion here and verse 19 that's exactly what you do to man's hope It perishes. It dies. There's no hope for us. You just take it away from us. You overpower him. It goes away. You alter his appearance, which is, you know, face of death, and you send him away. Even if his sons were to achieve honor, he doesn't know it. They become insignificant. He does not perceive it. Whether good things happen to his progeny, he doesn't know. Bad things? No idea. His flesh pains him, and he mourns only for himself. There's that isolation, that loneliness at the end of life that Job says, "I, I have no hope. God... My last, my only hope is that I would be able to stand before you, and you'd answer me, give me an answer. I defend my ways before you. Thankfully, that's not what God does. He does something one, far, much, more, far more wonderful than answering Job's plea for justice. God shows him himself, and lets him rest in that. You know who I am, Job. Your friends didn't speak to me rightly about speak about me rightly, but you you did you're defending yourself too much you should just quiet and you should give praise to me far, far from what Satan had accused Job of, of going through these things and then cursing God to his face God says you must bless me you must worship me not for the stuff I can give you but for who I am in your life you must rest in the knowledge that I am good I'm sovereign I'm, I'm full of wisdom I know all these things and you don't Job you don't have it all figured out but I do you can trust me. I wanted to finish with, with reading through First Corinthians 15 a little bit. It's a long chapter. But especially that hope of resurrection and the truth of what is planted in the ground. And you don't plant something in the ground unless you expect it to die. The seed dies so it can live give a new life. And that's exactly what Job is doing. I've got to die so that I can live. But life is only possible through Christ himself. Christ is the one who conceals us. Christ is the one who carries our sin in his body so that we don't have any recollection of it. The sin that, that God records, he writes down in a book, all the wickedness, all the wicked words that our, anybody does in their lives and then brings it out and says, hey, remember this, 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 that, and pages and pages and books and volumes and libraries against this person, is taken away. Christ became sin for us so we can, we can become the righteousness of God in him. Find your refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your message, the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel that Job is hinting at. He's he's yearning for. He's yearning for this righteousness that comes from you, a a justification, not in himself, that he's such a wonderful person. And he would never say that, that he was sinless, but he was blameless because he dealt with a sin. He confessed it and forsook it and drew near to you in sacrifice and in hope. And we pray that we would have that same a relationship with you, not through animals and and blood and bulls and goats and so forth, but for the blood of your precious son, that through his death and burial and resurrection, we can have forgiveness of our sins and have a relationship with you. Again, we pray that you'd save and sanctify for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen.